Bible is full of stories that we all know and love. But how well do we know them? The answer might surprise you. The Bible you thought you knew is going to dive deep into the exquisite details of the biblical stories that make them fascinating and transforming. Since we have been treating stories involving Elijah and Elisha the last couple times, I thought we might do one more story featuring Elisha. It is recounted in 2 Kings chapter 3. Typically, when Elijah and Elisha are involved, strange things happen. This is no exception. The setting for this story is about a time when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah and Jehoram was king of Israel, here referred to as Samaria. Of course, Jehoram had succeeded his infamous father, Ahab. That's in chapter 3, verse 1. We are told a little about Jehoram in the introduction. He reigned for 12 years and, thankfully, was not as evil as his father had been or as evil as his mother, the notorious Jezebel, had been. At the same time, Jehoram was only a little bit of an improvement. He did manage to do away with the pillar of Baal, a well-known Canaanite god, but other than that gesture, he still engaged in many idolatrous practices. That's in verses 2 and 3. Then the narration lays out the situation. Moab was at that time a country required to pay tribute to Israel, proceeds that would come from the country's thriving sheep industry. Indeed, we are informed that Mesha, Moab's king, was himself a sheep breeder. Though the period is not specified in the Hebrew text, the tax extracted by Israel amounted to 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100 rams. Presumably, that was a year's tax levy, but we can't be sure. Moab smarted after, under this tax, and as soon as Ahab, Jehoram's father, died, stopped paying it. That's in verse 5. King Jehoram thought Moab's refusal was completely unacceptable, so he decided to do something about it. Because in this period, the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah were allied, King Jehoram decided to enlist the help of Jehoshaphat, Judah's king. When Ahab was alive, he also asked for Jehoshaphat's help, which was granted. Once again, King Jehoshaphat was willing to help his northern counterpart. The two kings together would attempt to rectify the matter militarily. That's in verses 6 and 7. As they marched to Moab, they went to Edom and got their king to join forces with them. That's in verse 8. Moab would have to deal with three countries, three kings, and three armies to avoid the onerous tax. After seven days of marching, however, the three kings ran into a logistical problem. There was insufficient amounts of water for the troops or their animals. That's in verse 9. Immediately, King Jehoram interpreted this circumstance as something that the Israelite God had caused. 
The Israelite king thought that the Lord was orchestrating defeat of this coalition by Moabite power. That's in verse 10. Just as he had done when Ahab had solicited his help, Jehoshaphat thought that this situation called for a prophetic consultation. The king of Judah inquired whether an Israelite prophet might be approached. Someone mentioned that Elisha, who had once served the great Elijah, was around. That's in verse 11. Apparently, Jehoshaphat knew of Elisha's reputation, for he opined that, quote, the word of the Lord is with him, end quote. As soon as Jehoshaphat delivered this verdict, all three kings went to see Elisha. That's in verse 12. Elisha, however, was not interested in helping the three kings or their countries. Instead, he addressed Jehoram by encouraging him sarcastically to consult the prophets of the other gods that Israel, the northern kingdom, was worshiping. That's in verse 13. This was a thinly veiled reference to Ahab's and Jezebel's flirtation with deities that were said not even to exist according to Israelite orthodoxy. But Jehoram insisted that the Israelite God was the deity who was making their campaign against Moab difficult. Elisha at this point relents, but not for Jehoram's sake. Respect for Judah and its king, Jehoshaphat, was the only reason Elisha would intervene. That's in verse 14. Then Elisha calls for music to be played. On occasion, a prophetic utterance is accompanied by music and typically instrumental music. Sure enough, when the minstrel played, when the minstrel played, the Lord's power came over Elisha. That's in verse 15. This power allowed Elisha to make a prophetic declaration, namely, that the Lord would fill this dry stream bread with pools of water. That's in verse 16. Showing that this was not a natural occurrence, the declaration was accompanied by the statement that the pools of water would not come from a regular rainstorm. Nevertheless, there will soon be ample water for the armies and their animals. Verse 17. As well, the Lord will see to it that Moab is soundly defeated by losing its fortified cities, watching fruit trees being destroyed, ruining their water, so, so, water source, and plastering its arable ground with stones. That's in verses 18 and 19. Sure enough, the next morning, water coming from the direction of Edom filled the place with plenty of water. That's in verse 20. Jehoram lucked out because of Jehoshaphat's presence. Poor Moab had only one choice in this situation, try to defend themselves. Both young men and old men, old men got ready to fight. That's in verse 21. One of the first things they saw at the place where the battle was to be waged was the water emanating from Edom. Inexplicably, when the Moabites saw the water, it appeared to them to be red. This observation led to a colossal mistake in military intelligence. 
Thinking that the red water was blood, the Moabites figured that the three kings had fought each other. From one perspective, one might be forgiven for thinking that a coalition coalition of Israel, Judah, and Edom would at best be a coalition of convenience. After all, Judah and Israel were often at odds ever since the great schism following Solomon's death. There were constant battles between the two countries. Edom, of course, was a population related to Esau, Jacob's older brother, who lost both birthright and blessing. Edom was seldom on good terms with either Israel or Judah, something that the prophet Nahum makes more than obvious. In any case, plausible or not, Moabite, the Moabites determined that the three kings had done them the favor of turning the sword on themselves. Therefore, they were no longer a threat. All Moab had to do was swoop down and take whatever loot was available from the three armies. That's in verse 23. As soon as Moab got to the battlefield, they re realized how badly they had estimated the situation. The Israelites, and presumably the other two armies, met them and defeated them soundly. That's in verse 24. Plus, just as Elisha had predicted, they overthrew cities, scattered stones on farmland, stopped up Moab's water source, felled the fruit trees. A few stragglers left from this route were taken care of by soldiers who were expert with slingshots. That's in verse 25. The defeat was all but total. When King Mesha realized the gravity of what he was witnessing, he went with 700 swordsmen and tried to outflank the Edomite forces. Alas, that tactic failed. That was in verse 26. Then something even more stunning than this incredible defeat happened. Now desperate, King Mesha took his oldest son, the heir apparent, and offered him up as a burnt offering upon the wall, evidently so that the deed could be seen. That's in verse 27. When Israel saw what Mesha had done, we are told that great rage overwhelmed the Israelite forces, at which time they withdrew from him, namely King Mesha, and went home. Though unstated, presumably the armies of Judah and Edom also returned home. What are we to make of a story like this? At one level, it is a story that features realpolitik in the style of the ancient Near East. Quite often, a strong state would require tribute or tax from a weaker state. When there was a change in leadership, sometimes a weaker state figured that it was time to get rid of the burden. Presumably, even a strong state would be a little weaker when a new king came to the throne. That is the backdrop of this account. 
But biblical stories are not simply about politics as usual. Once again, it is crucial to keep in mind that 2 Kings is that part of the Hebrew Bible that is called former prophets, meaning that this material is written from a prophetic perspective. From that standpoint, there are virtually no good guys and bad guys in this episode. Moab was simply a weaker state obligated to pay taxes to Israel. One might say that Moab qualifies as a bad guy character in that Moabites trace their ancestry to the incestuous actions of Lot's daughters after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, as recorded in Genesis. The results of that outrageous incest were two sons, Moab and Ammon. Moab's, Mo, Moabites and Ammonites were henceforth detestable, even though they themselves did nothing wrong. As the saying goes, one cannot choose one's parents. Plus, one of the great heroines of the Bible was Ruth, herself a Moabite. Israel was as idolatrous as ever and therefore did not qualify as a good guy. Judah was at the time in a more favorable position, relatively speaking, but it too would eventually be exiled by Babylon for its sins. Edom was greatly vilified, even though its ancestor Esau ended up being very, a very gracious character. In sum, when considering Israel, Judah, Edom, and Moab, there are basically no moral exemplars here. As the episode unfolds, Elisha is brought into the story once the three-nation coalition realizes it does not have enough water to support its campaign. Lacking water is a biblical motif, going back to Israel's trek through the wilderness after escaping Egyptian bondage. That water is miraculously supplied. In this instance, Elisha at first refuses to offer help in light of Israel's idolatrous ways. On reflection, though, he is willing to lend a prophetic hand in deference to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. Of course, God had made a special covenant with David and his descendants, of which Jehoshaphat was one. That covenant story is told in 2 Samuel 7. Still, that covenant did not guarantee moral superiority on the part of Davidic dynasts. Nevertheless, God's unconditional covenant with the Davidic dynasty paid dividends in this particular case. This eventuated in Elisha's miraculously supplying the needed water and also seeing to it that Moab would be defeated. Moab's defeat was so thorough that it actually elicits sympathy. After all, Moab was simply trying to get out of paying a regular tribute to Israel. That might have involved a political miscalculation, but it was hardly an abominable sin. The conclusion of the story, I think, is where the focus should be. When King Mesha sacrificed his son, 
presumably to the deity Chemosh, which was Moab's chief god, the Israelite reaction was rage and prompt avoidance of Mesha, thus getting back to their own territory as fast as possible. The question is, why this reaction? All of a sudden, King Mesha, who had been absolutely destroyed on the battlefield, now seemed somehow formidable and someone to be avoided at all costs. That reaction seems to be related to the belief that a human sacrifice to Chemosh must be somehow efficacious. From an Israelite point of view, this was unthinkable. Yet, later on, two kings of Judah, kings of Judah, Ahaz and Manasseh, one story in chapter 16 of 2 Kings and one in chapter 21 of 2 Kings, offered their own sons as a sacrifice. This illustrates the depth of depravity to which Israel had sunk. Instead of concluding that Mesha's sacrifice of his own son to a deity was madness and an abomination, they seemed to believe there was something to this evil practice. As noted, this deplorable practice would be seen later on in Judah, where kings of the Davidic dynasty had ruled. Given the way this episode ends, we realize that Elisha had his work cut out for him. These outrageous actions could not simply be laid to the feet of pagans, heathens, savages, or whatever names we might concoct. These actions were not nearly as foreign as we might think. Israel's and Judah's problems far transcended not having sufficient water for a military campaign. The moral rot was much, much deeper than that. Go to my website, faspina.com, and let me know what your email is so that I can contact you in the future. If you want me to ask, uh, answer a question in a Q&A uh, session, uh, email me at fspina106 at gmail.com. I want to thank you so very much for listening to The Bible You Thought You Knew. I have a question for you. Do you have a question or topic that you'd like me to cover on the podcast? If so, all you need to do is head over to Apple Podcasts and do two simple things. One, leave a rating and review telling me what you think of the podcast. Two, in that review, ask anything you want related to the Bible. That's all you have to do. Then, listen in to hear your question answered on a future episode. Join us next time on The Bible You Thought You Knew when we discuss Jesus' personal Bible. God bless. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.